Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The Tunaris podcast is proudly sponsored by Inline Eco, your trusted partner in asbestos removal and re roofing services across Ireland. Your peace of mind and safety are our top priorities. For more information, visit inlineeco.ie. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Two Norries podcast. I'm your host, James, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Timmy Long. Hi, everyone. And Kieran De Bruyne. De Bush. De Bruyne. De Bush. Say, say it you, your full name. Kieran De Bush. You are the head of the parole board, the I director. The chief executive. The chief executive of the parole board. That's an interesting role. But how do you end up getting into that? What's your background? Um, I, I suppose the same as many people. I didn't take a direct road to it. I would have studied law and then criminology after school and would have done some part-time work in the training unit prison and then would have worked in services for people with mental health issues. After that, I suppose I went on to work in the NGO world and I would have done a lot of work around children's rights and also gender equality. So I would have headed up Start Strong, which campaigned for children's rights, and I would have been uh, a member of the board of the Children's Rights Alliance in the past. Um, and I would have also headed up Women for Election, which campaigned to see more women elected. You were never tempted yourself to go uh, into politics? I think I, I like my private life a bit too much to yeah, be uh, in political life. I'm not sure I could give that commitment to it. I was tempted, I won't lie, in the past. Um, but I suppose I kind of like to have a bit of a boundary between work and home. Uh, we spoke to Minister Helen McEntee here a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the scrutiny that they're under personally, yeah. their families get brought into it. Just, I wouldn't do it, I you, you've kind of no downtime because you're always on duty and you're always having people. One of the brilliant things about the Irish political system is that TDs and elected reps, be at council level or in the Dáil, are very accessible. Like we all know at least one TD or councillor. If we don't, we know somebody who does. Yeah. Um, but the downside of that is that they'll have people calling to the door at all times of day and night. Yeah. And that's not the life for me. I like my time off. Yeah, it is right too. Let's talk parole board. What's the... Are people doing longer life sentences today than they were 10, 15 years ago? The life sentence now averages in or around 20 years. And I suppose I'm deliberately vague because it tends to be you know, six months shorter, six months longer year yeah. to year. Um, but averages don't really tell the whole story because it's such a small group of people. Mm. Um, How many? Would, would that 20 year also have depend on maybe... maybe um, whether the person is ready to to go out, yeah. like if they've, like say for example, if if there's somebody in fifteen to twenty year and they're still behaving in the same manner around drug addiction and uh, involvement in crime within the prison system, 
Like they're not going nowhere, are they after 20 years? Well, I suppose I'll I'll talk to the parole system, yeah, which yeah. um for life sentence prisoners is is their route out of prison. Um and we have a new parole system, so I can't really talk about numbers in that because it's so new. Yeah. Um we don't have enough yet that we can look to trends. But for us, I suppose we're guided by the legislation. There's the Parole Act 2019 that sets out how and why we can release somebody on parole. So it sets out that in order for somebody to be granted parole, and I'll just use the, the, the language of the legislation, for somebody to be granted parole, we, the parole board, have to be satisfied that they wouldn't pose an undue risk to the community, and that would include victims, mm-hmm. that they're rehabilitated and that it's appropriate in all other circumstances that they be released. And the considerations that we take into account when we're looking at are also set out in the legislation. So when I'm meeting with people, say if I'm meeting with a lifers group in any of the prisons, I would always say look to Section 27 of the Act. Mm. And, and we, we put copies of the Act in each of the libraries. Look to Section 27 because that sets out the decision-making framework and it sets out what we can take into account and what we're obliged to take into account. So we're obliged to take into account the nature and gravity of the offence, the length of time that somebody has served, um, other offences for which they've been convicted, um, the work that they've done in prison, so education, training, work that they might have done with psychology or with probation, and um, then the, the various other factors, and, and they're all set out there. So when we're making our decision, uh, all of the, those factors come into play. Uh, and when I say we're making the decision, I'm the chief executive. I'm not a decision maker in this. It's yeah. the, the members of the parole board who would make the decision as to whether to grant somebody parole or not. But there's, yeah. there's a lot taken into account uh, before somebody is granted parole. You know, you spoke about the the rehabilitation section there, and that's an important one. Um, so what what is the criteria that you look for in relation to the uh, rehabilitation, someone going through rehabilitation? Do they have to be drug-free? Do they have to be um, working with psychology? And understand where they can get an understanding of why they behave in so- certain ways, you know, when they're involved in criminality. <coughs> Sometimes... For somebody to take someone's life, they're probably not involved in criminality and it just happens up one night or something like that. And we won't get into that because it's a different story. But what is the real rehabilitation process that you look for? Well, I suppose there's there's no one tick list of things that somebody has to have done. It is very individual and we do approach each application as an individual application. So we would look to what somebody has done the work that they've done, it might help if I actually talk through the process in terms of what the information we get yeah. Yeah. Um, so that then I can explain what we're looking at okay. within that information. So under the Parole Act, the Irish Prison Service would tell us as to who is eligible to apply for parole. And to be eligible to apply for parole, you have to be, sent at the moment, you have to be serving a life sentence and to have served at least 10 and a half years of that life sentence. You can't be granted parole until you've served at least 12 years, but to be eligible to apply, you have to have served at least 10 and a half years. So when we get an application in and we try and keep the process as simple as we possibly can. So when we get told somebody is eligible to apply, we'll write to them and we'll say, do you want to apply? If you do, send us back 
um, this form and this form is a tick form and you put your name on it and you can also apply for legal aid as well at that stage. We're very conscious in all of our work that literacy amongst the, the prison population isn't brilliant. So we work with NALA, for example, to play in English our communications and we, we'll also translate to any language that people require as well. So we send that out and if, assuming it comes back to us that somebody wa- wants to apply for parole, we start two, I suppose, two parallel process then. One is we will try to contact the, the relevant victim. Um, and again, I'm using the language of the legislation here. So we will try and contact the relevant victim, which sounds very straightforward, but is not. Uh, we don't have a victim or we don't have a register of victims of serious crime in Ireland. So trying to contact people in relation to an offence that might have happened 20, 25 years ago. So you're probably going to the guards or... Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so so we will work with Ngarda Shilkana to, to try and get contact details of all those victims. Uh, so any victim, I will say in the meantime, any victim um, who does want to link in and engage with us is very welcome to do so. They don't have to wait until we, we try to make contact. So we'll contact them. We'll ask them if they want to make a submission. Assuming they do, they can either make that submission in writing or in person. At the same time, we also contact the services that have worked with the parole applicant. So that will be the Irish Prison Service, the psychology, IPS Psychology, the Probation Service, um, we'll also look for a report from the governor, from the Prison Review Committee, and at the same time, we'll also be going to Angarda Shiochana. So we're gathering a lot of information there. And when all of that is ready, so when we have a victim submission, assuming they want to make one, and we have all of those reports, we then compile what we call our dossier. Uh, and we will send that to the parole applicant for them to look through in advance of meeting with us. So there will be two parole board members. Usually, if there has been a, a victim submission where they've made the submission in person, those same two parole board members have met the victim, and usually the same two will then meet with the parole applicant. The victim never meets the perpetrator. No. Um, and, and that's something that, when having met with various victims' organisations and victims' rights groups, that's something that does tend to give comfort to most victims, and then some victims would prefer to be in the same room with the perpetrator. Uh, but most do find some comfort in knowing that they don't um, and they are making that submission that forms part of the process. So when all of that information is compiled, then the parole applicant and their solicitor or barrister, if they have one. It would be important uh, that the barrister or solicitor would represent them at at a hearing like that, you would imagine. Well, parole applicants, one one of the big changes brought in under the legislation is that parole applicants now have a right to legal representation under the previous system, they wouldn't have had that entitlement and, in fact, couldn't have had a, a legal rep in a meeting with them. Now they're entitled to, and I think particularly if somebody finds that their literacy isn't brilliant, because we're talking about a lot of paper here, if their literacy isn't brilliant or if they're just not confident in a meeting and don't feel they'll be able to put their case forward, a solicitor can be very useful for that. And it is free legal aid, uh, so it's available to everyone. They can either use their own solicitor and we can put them through our free legal aid um, panel or we can assign them a solicitor if they don't already, solicitor or barrister, um, if they don't already have one. Um, so that 
a lot of the lads I would have spoken with have found it useful. It's not for everyone. Some people prefer to represent themselves mm. and that, that's their legal entitlement. Um, but a lot of the lads I've spoken with have found it useful, particularly if they were nervous for whatever reason. And, and it can be nerve wracking. I mean, you're talking about very personal stuff. You're talking about the work you've done. Um, an awful lot of the parole applicants would have addiction issues. So they're talking about their engagement with the addiction services and where they are at in that particular stage. Um, they will be talking about the work that they've done with psychology, the offence-focused work that they may have done. Um, we, we don't, we're not retrying anyone. Um, we are taking the conviction as sound because it has come through the courts. So we're not rehearing a conviction but we are, I suppose, trying to get a context to the offence uh, and I suppose the, the risk factors that were in play before the offence was committed so that we can then gauge whether those um, factors are still there or whether they have been addressed to a greater or lesser extent. And so I suppose the, the short answer to your question is there, there isn't a, a, a tick list. Uh, it is very individual but it is also very much down to the individual applicant as well in terms of the amount of work that they've done. What's the minimal amount of time somebody could spend on a life sentence? Under the legislation, nobody can be granted parole before 12 years. Um, so somebody could be granted parole at 12 years. Most applicants who come in to us at, at the 12-year stage are not ready for parole, and many will say themselves they're not ready um, that they're looking to move to the next stage rather than looking for parole. Under the legislation, I suppose we have three key powers. We can grant parole, we can refuse parole, or where there is a parole order, we can vary or revoke that parole order. Um, so our role is not that of sentence management. Um, that said, we can also make recommendations where we refuse an application for parole, we can make recommendations. So we will, for example, recommend if we think somebody is ready to progress to an open centre and is ready for that next stage of their sentence, we will make a recommendation that we we feel they're now ready to move to an open centre. Do they all have to go to open centres? No. Um, and, and there have been... Would you encourage it? it it's much easier to establish that you're ready, that you're rehabilitated and you're ready to live back, back within your community if you're in an open centre and you have a programme of temporary release. So you're going out to do your, your course or your training or you're working in a job or whatever it might be. It's much easier then to demonstrate that you're ready for parole. It is trickier to demonstrate it within a closed prison, but that's not to say it can't be done and it has been done. Yeah. Who um who sits in the in, in a parole board hearing? So you have the, the the board, which is fifteen. You have the 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 person who's in prison, their solicitor or barrister. Does the victim sit in the sitting as well? And another thing, do you know, if the victim gives uh, some a state a letter, and they give some commentary around their experience, how they're still suffering, and what this person done to their life. Is is that taken into consideration as well on that and on the parole, even though the person that is in front of you has been from day one working on his rehabilitation or her rehabilitation, 
they're not in, in trouble in prison. They've they've gone with the education system. They've interacted with everything that they could. You know, would would that impact statement from the victim stop them? Would that would that stop them from going on? Let me take that in two parts. Yeah. Um, in terms of what it looks like, and and then the the victim's role and the submission they'll make. The anyone who who has watched either. American crime programs where we look at parole hearings or the, the recent UK documentary parole, the Irish system is different. Um, Irish systems are usually different and parole is, is no exception to that. We will, amongst our, our board members, two board members, if the victim wants to make a, a, an in-person submission, will meet with the victim the same two board members will meet with the parole applicant, usually the same two. Sometimes it's not always possible. So the, the parole applicant, so the person who's looking to get out on parole, will meet with two board members. There'll be a member from the, the staff team there. So one of my colleagues will be there to make a note of the meeting. And the, the parole applicant can have their legal representative there as well. Those two board members will... Um, look at the note at the meeting, it is shared with the parole applicant and their legal representative if they have one. And I suppose one of the things that I would be saying to, to lads when I meet them, if they come out of the meeting and they think, I never said that, or I forgot to tell them about this, or I forgot to tell them the course I've done, or I've forgotten this, send us in a note afterwards. Yeah. You know, either, either write it yourself if you can, or work with your legal rep. Uh, or somebody else in the prison, we, you know, sometimes people will ask a teacher or one of the officers to help them write something up and send it in to us. All of that then comes back to the full board. So the, the 15 board members um, will consider the full dossier of information and then make the decision. So the parole applicant doesn't meet with the full board. The victim doesn't meet with the full board. Um, it's, it's a different system in, in the way that we do that. And then when the board are making their decision, that's when they look to the, the legislation and all the considerations they need to take into account. The second part of your question was around the, the victim submission and, and I suppose the role it plays. The One of the things that, and, and one of the key changes that came in with the, this new parole process is that victims now have a role and victims now make a submission uh, within the parole process. They are not the decision makers. And when I meet with victims groups and victims' rights organisations, I stress that they don't make that decision because that would be an awful load for any victim to carry to feel that they needed to make the decision. It is the parole board who make that decision. Taking into consideration the submission. Taking into consideration the submission, and we do, we're, we're obliged to take that, that submission into consideration consideration and it is one piece of information in the round of wider information um, and we're always very conscious when we contact victims particularly where somebody has served a longer sentence so that say they might be 20 25 years in our letter um, because generally we just we we will only have postal contact details our letter coming in the door and you know dropping onto the floor can very often be the first time they have had contact from the wider justice system since the trial. Um, and that can be very 
traumatic for people. Um, and our meeting can at times be the first time that they have met with anyone and used the name of their loved one who was killed. And that can be very traumatic for people. So, so we, we, we don't ever want to make things any worse for people. They've gone through some of the, the, the worst experiences that, that you can have. We don't want to add to that. So if somebody feels that making a submission is not for them, there's no obligation on them to make a submission and the parole boards do not read into the fact that they haven't made a submission. So if, if it is not in their personal interest to make a submission, they shouldn't feel obliged to do so. Uh, if it is, we are very well open and would welcome hearing it, uh, but it is very much down to the individual victims as to what is the best thing for them. Has a victim, sorry, James, right. has a victim harassed the sea? the person that committed the crime within their family? Not yet. Um, As in, like, for them to maybe maybe get some, I don't know, I don't think there's ever ever a day that you, you can say that it's over, but no. because you're, 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 you're constantly reminded. But, like, where my head is, 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 is this, where my head is trying to just bring in the, the kind of forgiveness nature of, of, of something like that. And it can be difficult for everybody, including me and all of us sitting at the table here, you know. And, and like, if somebody wants to carry that kind of anger with them, they're quite entitled to, you know. Absolutely. Unless they're, unless they're right, you know. But um, I also know from my own personal journey and just from my own kind of learning of life that... We do get stunted as well when we're when 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 um when we're caught up in, in that form of of you know holding onto something like that which is so strong it pulls us back. Um. So where my head was like, wouldn't there be some powerful exchange between somebody if they were able to sit down and just have that restorative justice justice kind of practice? Where I could sit down, like, and just say, like, you took my son or you took my daughter away from me, like, and they completely destroyed my life and my family's life, and uh, you know, it, like, it would give a real sense of meaning to the whole process as well. So you have the the person who committed a crime sitting here, and they're listening to the the victim's parents, or brother or sister, and they're telling them exactly how they felt. You know, and what it's done to their family. And and then when you start talking about the person then as well, you know, um, it, it would be a difficult process. I know for me, knowing the kind of person I am now, it would be a difficult process for me to sit through. But I think it would be truly beneficial for everybody on both sides. You know, how far away do you think our system is from maybe implementing something like that down the line? I think one of the... The, the really important pieces that you, you said there within that was that it's a restorative justice process. Yeah. And one of the things we in the parole board are very conscious of and very careful of is our process is not restorative justice. And we have had some victims who would have approached us and said they would be interested in something like that. And we have worked with other services. So, for example, the probation service run a restorative justice project. So we will link in with them. Mm. Um, and I know that some of the victims with whom we've engaged 
have also had a restorative justice process. Uh, we've also had parole applicants that have asked us um, that they would like to see something like that in place. And again, we would also say that is not us um, and we would link in with the, the relevant service. It's always important that a restorative justice process like that is victim driven. Yes. Um, it needs to yeah. be coming from the victim. Yeah, um, there need to be supports there as well. In the absolutely. For everybody. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a process yeah. and, and tends to be a long process leading up to sometimes meeting with the, the, the perpetrator in their case. Not always. It can be a shuttle process as well. Um, that's not something that we, we can do. Um, and I suppose amongst our considerations, while the victim submission is part of it, that there's also wider considerations that we need to take into account and the considerations taken into a restorative justice process where people are, I suppose, reaching a reparation um, is, is different to ours. And we don't want to, to blur those. Now, neither do we want anyone feeling like we're, we're passing them on further. We don't. We will continue to engage with the victim and ensure that the services and supports they're getting are meeting what they need as much as possible. Mm. Um, and that is one thing that we're not always great on in mm. Ireland, um, is having those, those supports and services in place. Uh, and I suppose one of the other things is we will meet victims with a whole range of approaches and attitudes and concerns and we can never know going into a victim's meeting, and I, I'm using the royal we here as it's my, it tends to be my colleagues rather than I, yeah. um, in those meetings, but they will never know at the start of the meeting what the victim wants to say. Mm. Our role is to hear the victim. Um, we need to hear what they want to say, and it is their meeting, so we will take our lead from them. As I suppose as a wider parole board, our role is to be an independent parole board that protects our communities, is fair to parole applicants and listens to victims. So th there's a whole suppose, different strands of work within that, um, all coming back to we're an independent parole board making decisions on parole. The Tunaris podcast is proudly sponsored by Inline Eco, your trusted partner in asbestos removal and re-roofing services across Ireland. Your peace of mind and safety are our top priorities. For more information, visit inlineeco.ie. Do the guards make submissions? And let's say I was a high profile. Now, most murders in Ireland are high profile, but some are more high profile than others. Um, is there a pressure on the parole board, even if the person went in high profile, right? But they went in and they started their sentence the day they got it. They did everything they were supposed to be doing, but they have this name or this associations or this, you know, media interest. Is there pressure on the parole board to keep them in for a certain amount of time? Because if they let them out, there would be public backlash, maybe pressure from governments or... Like, that has to be an awkward kind of a position to be in for the parole board. It, it's, it's not, really, because the parole board, what we can and should consider is set out in the legislation, and the legislation does not mention media. Mm -hmm. um, and the parole board do not consider media coverage 
uh, when making their decision. They do not consider the high-profile nature of the crime. Um, they will consider the nature and gravity of the offence, but not how, how many condominiums it generated at the time or since. Uh, that's not taken into account by the parole board. Where it might become a factor is if, say, somebody were granted a parole, um, and when we make our decision to grant parole, we will say that a parole order um, is being granted and that somebody, you know, whoever it might be, must be released by X date. And that X date can be up to 18 months into the future. So where it might become a factor is in managing somebody's release uh, and ensuring that the supports are put in place around them. And that's done by the Irish Prison Service and the Probation Service um, working together to ensure that somebody has the best opportunity when they're released that they're not going to be coming back to the parole board, yeah. that we will get positive progress reports um, and that we will not see that person yeah. again in the future. Do we ever get? Do we ever swap with the UK, for example? Let's say if somebody was up for parole and you say um, they should be eligible for release, but it would be better if they were repatriated to England and then we take an English prisoner. Does that happen or not? There is repatriation. Um, I suppose the way we would see it is that there would be people coming back exchange. to Ireland. Um, so there would be a number of people serving life sentence, um, uh, would be serving a life sentence who would be repatriated back to an Irish prison. <laughs> One of the things that we, I suppose, when we're meeting with people, because there is a tariff system in the UK, many you people... explain that to us? So in the UK at the moment, a sentencing judge can say there's a tariff of 15 years or 14 years or 17 years or whatever it might be. And it is when that tariff, so if they say a 15-year tariff, that person is not eligible to, to be considered for parole until that tariff has expired. That tariff doesn't hold when somebody is repatriated. Um, so we will be considering their parole application as if they were any other prisoner um, who was sentenced to a life sentence prisoner. So the, the, the tariff yeah. doesn't hold legally yeah. uh, when they are repatriated back to Ireland from the UK. How many years does somebody have to be into a sentence before they get called before the parole board? Somebody has to serve 10 and a half years before they're eligible to apply. Um, we would have started... Um, we're making decisions slightly over a year now. Um, so what happened was that the interim parole process that was there, which in the Irish way of things was interim for 20 years, um, <laughs> that stopped and the new parole board started the next day. So everyone who had served 10 and a half years or longer was eligible to apply on the same day. So it is taking us a while to work through all of those applications. So I keep saying we've we've a two-year transition from what was there previously to now in order to be able to consider all of those, those initial applications. When somebody applies to us after the 10 and a half years, if they're not granted parole, we will then see them again or, or they, they are eligible to, to reapply for parole uh, within, we will specify the period of time, but it can't be any longer than two years. So under the old system, lads might. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's what would have been termed a three-year knockback. Uh, now it can't be any longer than two years before they're eligible again. Mm. And I suppose one of the things that's really, really important here is that there was a real concern when it went from the, the seven and a half years up to the 12 years that uh, that would just elongate a life sentence in prison. Um Anyone subject to a life sentence needs to be doing the work from day one. Mm. There's no point in starting after seven starting years. after seven years or ten mm. years or ten and a half years. You need to have been doing the work from day one. You're not doing yourself any favors by kicking back for the first while, um, because all of that is taken into account. Mm. You know, we, when we're looking at our reports, can track what somebody has been doing and can look at the work they've been doing and the progress they've been making. We can also look at, for example, the P19s that somebody has been getting throughout their sentence. So How far back would you go for the P19s? From the start of the sentence. Go away out that. So if you went in and... they stopped, then is it? And when they stopped, then you can see the changes. That yeah. Been. So if you have a fellow before you are a girl, that's instance 2003, for example, nice strong number 20 years ago, and for the first five years, they were blackout because they were immature or whatever, for they had to, to do a life sentence, they had to get your head around that. Yeah. Um, would you go back through those P19s from 20 years ago, 15 years ago? We will have a report of, of all of the P19s um, served during that sentence. There'd obviously be some understanding around the stuff they've done in the meantime. And maybe how they were when they came into yeah. the prison, if they were young and they're still yeah. full, yeah. like a young man, he still, he still needs to show who he is and what he's about. Yeah, you know? and, and you can see progression in that way and that somebody's accumulating a load of P19s at the start and that tapers down as they get into their sentence and they engage more with the services. That's not to say it wouldn't be better if there weren't um, P19s earlier on. One of, one of the other things I know when I'm, I'm meeting with lifers groups is uh, somehow there has been this misunderstanding that uh, you're better off having a load of P19s at the start so that you can show progress. If you go in with no P19s, you're at nothing. That's not the case. Um, it does show progress if, if they come down, but it also shows you've been working from the start if you don't have them. Um, and, and, you know, that's, I suppose, a much stronger position to be in. James is on, on about maybe um, like he was on about some of the high profile cases that we have here in Ireland with the media and stuff 
what about cases where where you may have had a child killed or maybe um a woman probably raped and murdered does the same criteria still stand yes for that yeah it's the same in, criteria in, in for a child it's the same so, criteria that was set out in the legislation okay. so i suppose with those particular examples that you're using there the nature and gravity of the offence is something that's that's considered and the length of time served in the context of the nature and gravity of the offence. Um, so all of that is taken into consideration uh, and is, is looked at. So it, it's different from, say, what happens in the UK or, or in England and Wales, I should say, where they are looking at risk and solely um, concentrating on risk. We look at risk and we also look to other factors that include the nature and gravity of the offence, the length of time that somebody has served. I suppose one of the things when we talk about the length of time somebody has served, um, just to remind people, you serve a life sentence for the duration of your life, be exactly. it in prison or in the community. You will always be supervised by the probation service while you're in the community. Um, always. Always. Yeah, and that means like until always. the day you die. Yes, yeah. um, and we will always get progress reports. Okay. Um throughout somebody's sentence, be it, you know, when they have left the prison, they're still serving that sentence in the community. And when we grant a parole order, we will have conditions attached to the parole order. So there's standard conditions, don't commit any further offences. And then there might be specific conditions that they might be geographical, that you don't go to a certain area or whatever it might be. Um, but you will always be subject to um, supervision throughout your life sentence. So, so that supervision can we can we have some of the details around that in relation to what happens if somebody messes up or if maybe they get drunk, right? They're on supervision. They get drunk. They drive the car. They get stopped. They're done for drunk driving. Game over, he says. Uh. Is, is there a bit of leniency with, with the, the, the charges? Yeah. Or where is it where you just bring them back? And say, for example, how long do you bring them back in for then? Is it for another five year for a, a drunken driving offence? Um, I'm just trying to get a little bit of an understanding. I might be going the wrong road, but like what, what are the seriousness um, of the charges that need for that somebody needs to commit before they get brought back in. Well, I suppose the, the first thing is I'm speaking in the hypothetical here because yeah. that hasn't happened yet. Okay. Um, under the legislation, committing any offence of any nature is a breach of your parole order. So that will be coming back to us. Um, we're, we have changed the conditions. So previously under the old system, there would, for example, have been a condition that you couldn't go on to any licensed premises, which you couldn't go into your local corner shop either, more often than oh. not, because most of the, the, well, the bigger the, the corner shops sell a bottle of wine would be the selling a bottle of wine and that's like a licensed premise. That is not a condition of, that is not a general condition of a parole order. For some people, we might feel that that's a specific condition. Uh, but in general, that's not a condition of a parole order. So we are, we don't want to set anyone up to fail. 
uh, when somebody has been released and parole, we genuinely hope never to see them yeah. again. Mm. Um, and if if alcoholism wasn't a problem, there's really no reason why they shouldn't be allowed to have a bottle of wine once, whenever they want to, really, as long as they are law-abiding citizens, isn't it? As, as long as it's not impacting on their ability to to live a yeah, law-abiding yeah, yeah. life and to engage with their supervision. Um, so, you know, once it isn't impacting on that, assuming it's not as a specific condition for some people, um, given the, the, I suppose, their, their own background, their triggers in terms of risk mm. and their own addiction issues, we may have a, a specific condition saying you can't go onto licensed premises, you cannot um, drink any alcohol or whatever it might be specific to them. But again, like I said, we don't want to set anyone up to fail on this. Yeah. We also have to ensure that we're protecting the community with our conditions. So that's about managing risk within the community um, and and how that can be best managed. I think the risk of reoffending for life, life sentence people is very, very small. Well, like I said, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But you're only wrong since 2019. Exactly. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and in fact, later in terms of getting things up and running. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, it is a very low risk. And, you know, all of the research will show that it is, is lower amongst life sentenced uh, prisoners. I suppose our concern is that we need to ensure that while it is lower, that it is managed well within the community. And that's where our colleagues in the probation service yeah. do incredible work. Um, working with those who who are in the community serving their life sentence and working with them to to live life within the community as best they can with the supports that they need to do that. You no, know, if I was going for parole and Timmy was going for parole and Timmy have no history of addiction and I have a history of heroin addiction, would it be in the parole recommendations when you're going out path of the supervision? that I'd have to abstain from illicit drugs, whereas Timmy wouldn't. And would the urinalysis, weekly urinalysis, is that a thing? Well, it's an offence to to use illicit drugs. So in using them, whether you had a history of addiction but, or not, you, you know, have broken your parole order. But, you know, but it is a, a general condition that you would not engage in alcohol or other substance misuse uh, to the extent that it impacts on your ability to... Yeah fulfill the, the terms of your parole conditions and that is done with the probation service and there's also a general condition that you need to engage with services be they mental health services addiction services or others where the probation service think it would be of benefit to you mm. um so see when you're doing a when you do a drugs test it doesn't say on the drugs test if what you used is illicit or not do you know what i mean so if it shows up as opiates and you have a history of heroin addiction, I say, but mm. you'll have to be taking something. And the reason I say this, I met a fella in a treatment centre, I talked to me before, I met a fella in a treatment centre, he was, I won't say where he was from, but he he used to watch the podcast in the prison he came from. And he was after doing 20 years, he was in a re- drug residential treatment centre, and he tested positive for opiates. Now he swore down that he didn't take any opiates. So as it turns out, most of the people in the treatment centre treatment centre tested positive for opiates do you know what it was poppy seed bread from Aldi mm. and they showed up as opiates in the urine because it's this, do you know what I mean and he was like if the rest of them didn't eat the bread who's going to believe me do you know <laughs> do 
But, but we, you said something there earlier that um, somebody's eligible for parole after 12 years. They can apply after can ten apply. and a half years. And and when are they actually eligible for parole? In this? They can't be. Nobody can be released on parole until they've served twelve years. Twelve. But then. But the thing then is, the, the, average, the, the, average the process is, is sorry to me. It, the, the pro, it's a long process. It, I was just trying to yeah. close the gap on the eight years, so it's 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 kind of ye getting to know the the person for at least six to eight years. Between them becoming el, el, them becoming eligible, uh, eligible at twelve after twelve years and approved then, which 20, is 22. the average at the moment is twenty twenty two, so it's about ye kind of connecting with them and, and and finding out if they're ready for parole. Is it? Well, I suppose it's it's a long process in two ways. In that, from the time somebody applies to the time they get a decision, that's a lengthy process. So by the time we've engaged with victims, we've heard from them and and heard their submissions. And also by the time we've directed the reports be prepared and they're prepared and everyone has had the opportunity to read through them, to have the meeting, to, to talk through their application, all of that is a lengthy process. It's also, that's not to say it can't happen, most people don't get granted parole on their first application. Most people aren't ready for parole on their first application. It is, I suppose, a way of demonstrating progress um, you know, from somebody's first application to subsequent ones where you can show that you've demonstrated that progress. Uh, and that does show, you know, we will see, because we also at the moment can see their files from the old system, we can see the progress somebody has made and the changes they have brought about and how things have changed for them within their sentence and how they are managing this stage of their sentence um, and you, you can see how somebody is moving through, not always in a straightforward line. Life doesn't happen in straight lines. You know, people will have setbacks. Um, and again, the, the, the parole board are pragmatic that people will have setbacks, the same as life inside and outside. We all have setbacks in life. Um, so the parole board are pragmatic about that, but also need to take into account those setbacks and what they would mean I suppose, in the wider context, if somebody were to be on parole and what they need to then put in place to manage that so that they don't find themselves back in the same situation again. Who makes up the parole board? What's the profile of the people on it and can kind of people apply to go on it? Well, the, the legislation sets out who is on the parole board in terms of where they're coming from. So they're what... they're. It's chaired by a former High Court judge. Um, at the moment, that's Judge Michael White. Uh, and then there are what we call nominating bodies. So Angar the Siakana can uh, nominate people, the uh, Irish Psychology Society, the, um, I'm going to mangle the names of these now, the Psychiatric Association of Ireland, yeah. Yeah. Um, the Irish Prison Service, the Probation Service, all can nominate members. Uh, in order to ensure gender balance, they're actually usually asked to nominate two, and then the minister will appoint from those two. So they're asked to nominate a man and a woman, uh, and we do have a fairly well-balanced board in terms of gender that way. Uh, and there are also within that community representatives. Uh, so there are a number of community representatives, and, and that's advertised when there, there are vacancies, um, and people would then apply to that. 
and go through the public appointment service process in terms of their their parole application. Uh, when they are advertising, they, to date they've been advertised once because we are a new board. Um, and then we would go back to nominating bodies if somebody, for example, is, is representing the Law Society and uh, feels that they need to step back from the board, the Law Society will then be asked to nominate, with apologies to my colleague from the Law Society who has not stepped back, um, they will be asked to nominate somebody else. So it, it's it's to be representative of wider society and also, I suppose, with a particular understanding of the criminal justice system um, and how people will progress through their life sentence. Is it, is it, it, what does it boil down to then? Does it boil down to everybody agreeing on whether somebody should, should get out or not? Or does it boil down to, is it a voting system? Is, or does everybody, does 15 on that board and the chair have to agree? How does that work? Generally, so far, it has been, and we're making decisions now for over a year. Mm. Uh, generally, there has been agreement reached, generally. On occasion, there needs to be a vote. Um, and to be honest, I think that's healthy yeah. um, in terms of, because it is such a complex decision that it may not always be the best thing to reach a consensus uh, because if if it was always to reach a consensus, I think w- we we might um, become extremely risk averse. In that. Fifteen people there, they're probably all senior in their own backgrounds, they and there nobody wants to. They, they, they might be they're not strong in their opinions. Like we, we have very strong yeah. um, that's opinions at the at the, the board meeting, and that's why they're there, um, and they're all bringing their own expertise. I suppose they're also all looking at things from a very slightly different lens within that. Uh, you know, somebody who is, is is coming from one, I'm now thinking of my board members, so I don't want to pick out any one particular area. But, but you have people there representing victims, the guards, the lawyers, the prisons, the, the, the perpetrators, you have all those people in a room trying to well, agree on something. We have people there, say, from the guards, the Irish Prison Service, the Probation Service, um, psychology backgrounds, psychiatry backgrounds, um, and and they will all be coming from slightly different perspectives and, and will have a different expertise and will be bringing a different lens to it. In general, they will all be coming towards the same decision. On occasion, they don't. And, and when that occasion arises, we have a vote, um, which, you know, to me is a healthy way of, of, of arriving at a decision. It's also healthy that we don't reach there um, too readily, uh, but it is a piece. And, and also, say, in relation to the conditions, you know, we, there might be an agreement that somebody is to be granted parole. There might be a disagreement around conditions. And all of that is, is talked through. They tend to be very lengthy board meetings um, because there is so much to be considered in each individual you decision. Get, you need to get that decision right, don't you? Absolutely. It's critical. And... Like, um, I was just going to say, you know, your board, like, is there a criteria that they have to take off as well to be on that panel? Say, for example, they, they can't be on that board if they've had somebody murdered in their family. And this if, is just... If, if there's a conflict of interest in yeah. individual cases, people will step outside of the meeting for that individual case and don't participate right. in any of the discussions and also wouldn't... Um, mm 
you know, wouldn't be party to any of the decision-making process. Uh, so, so that is critical in that yeah. way. Um, if there is a wider conflict of interest, they're not the, piece, the, the, the person to be nominated yeah. uh, to become a board member. Uh, so, you know, I suppose it's, it's, it's managed at that earlier stage. Yeah. Ireland is very small. Everyone on the board at some stage will have a conflict with an individual case, be it that they yeah, yeah. know the victims or may have worked with the applicant or whatever it might be in the past. Um, so people will routinely step out for that particular discussion yeah. and decision. I'm guessing people with criminal records can't be on the board. Well, the legislation sets out who can be on the board. Other legislation um, may prohibit people from becoming board members if they have a conviction. Okay. Is there anything else that we're missing that you think is poignant that we're bringing up before we finish? I think one of the yeah. one of the strengths of this parole process, but also one of the loads, I would say, both for board members and the staff team as well, is we're we're different to many elements of the justice sector. We hear and hold stories from victims and parole applicants. And they are all bringing levels of trauma and grief. And, it, you know, it is not easy work. Um, yeah. I, I would joke that it, it's never a great chat up line to say you work in the parole board. Yeah. Mm. Um, it is critically important work. It's a difficult job. It's, it's, because, yeah, like, it's, it's, it's not a job you take lightly, it, no. whether as a staff member like myself in the, in the role of chief executive or as a board member. It's, it's not something you... You kind of because say, oh, yeah, I'll give that a lash. Be, because somebody's going to get hurt uh, no matter what yeah. your decision is, whether it's the victim's family or the family of the, uh, the person who committed the crime yeah. or the person themselves. Has it ever happened that you've had a life sentence, uh, someone doing a life sentence, and they didn't even want to apply for parole, that they were so yes. caught up in shame, guilt, guilt yeah. of what they done? Yeah. We would have, there's a... a as I explained earlier, that we write and we invite people to apply. There's, there's a significant enough group yeah. that haven't applied. Now, we don't just send one letter and leave it be. Yeah. You know, we, we will continue to, to link in with them. And if if I get a call, and, and I have had calls uh, where either somebody in, in psychology or the Irish Prison Service or the Education Service, whoever might be saying, I'm a bit worried about whoever, mm. Um I will go and meet with them because I'm not a decision maker. I can go and meet with them and say, look, this is the parole process. Think about applying. Uh, that doesn't mean they do apply, but I suppose we want to make sure that everyone is aware of the process and, and can um, put in their application. Uh, we would have, as, as part of that work, for example, I would meet with lifers groups right across the prison campus for some reason, I really dislike the term prison campus, but no. across the, the, the various different prisons. Um, the estate. I'm not sure that's any better. It's a bit grand, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's bit, yeah. It doesn't yeah. really sum up prison yeah. life, does it? Oh. Um, so I I would, I suppose, be on a, a rolling programme of meetings and we would in, invite anyone who's serving a life sentence so they don't have to wait for the 10 and a half years before they can come to one of those meetings to chat through the process because it's a daunting process it's a hard process um you know it, it it's not just in terms of it can be daunting 
or literacy reasons or confidence reasons, you're also talking about deeply personal stuff, mm. you know, deeply personal in terms of your own background. Sometimes it can be your, your childhood experiences and what would have led to you being in the situation where you're now serving a life sentence. It can be in relation to your addiction issues. It could be in relation to the, the sentence you're serving and the work that you've done. It can be in relation to how you feel about the victim's family. Mm. Uh, and that can be extremely distressing for, for applicants. Um, it's also extremely distressing for victims in making those submissions. Um, so it's, it's not an easy decision. There's no parole decision that is reached quickly. Um, I look to other jurisdictions and, and look to their average times in reaching a decision. I'm, I'm usually a gog going, how? Um, it's not an easy, quick decision. It is a critically important decision. Uh, there, there, I don't think there will, in general, when we reach a decision, somebody will be upset, somebody will be hurt, whether it's the, the victim's families and the hurt they're carrying or whether it's the parole applicant and, and their family um, or whether it is their wider community. Uh, somebody will will find it difficult to understand the decision. But part of our job is to have that independent decision-making process and also to explain it better uh, so that people do understand. You know, there, there is a common mis misunderstanding there that well, for some reason, lots of people seem to think that seven years is, is a life sentence um, and that you're done after seven years. You're serving a life sentence for life. Um, and I, I think that gives comfort to victims' families to a slight extent. Um, it also, you know, a, a lot of people are taken aback as life sentence prisoners when they learn this because it might not have been something that they would have considered beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. Just before we finish up, I have just one question in relation to any lads that's listening to this from the prison who are doing life sentence. Um, and they're may, maybe on the road to coming out at some stage. What, and, and you mightn't be able to answer this, what is available to the lads? Because you're coming from prison and you're coming into a different environment. No. Your, your, your old environment doesn't even look the same. Some of the people that were there are probably dead or gone or whatever, you know. Um, what does it look like for somebody you have to finish in 20, 25, 30 years? And I've met fellas that have been in 30 and 40 years in prison, you know. How how do they be integrated back into society yeah. that they don't even know? And the only society they've known for the last 30 or 40 years would be a prison setting. Like, uh, we, like is it, do you give them the option of maybe continuing the rest of their lives inside an open centre? Is that something that, that the, I don't know if you could even answer that, is that something that we should be doing, offering them that? Because like, I, I, I don't know what people would do going back out into society after 30, 30 40 years. You know, I, I couldn't even wrap my head around it. And, and it is hard. Um, you know, the, the world has change completely um, those of us outside can see some of the changes but there's a whole plethora of other changes that we don't even notice uh, because we're living our life outside um, one of the I think one of the real strengths in the Irish system 
is that ongoing supervision um, and supervision in that way can sound like the wrong thing because as it is as much support and engagement as it is supervision. Um, so it's it's having those services in place, having the supports you need in place. And that's, again, as one of the, the advantages of the Irish system is that we can say we're granting a parole order and whoever should not be should be released on a date on or before 12 months time or 18 months time and that's to allow time to have the supports they need in place the likes of the Cork Alliance Centre you know mm-hmm. Sheila Handley yeah. she'd have people that would be out after doing a life sentence and she'd be supporting them along with the probation service yeah yeah and it's having those supports in place it's having it's having a home so that you, you're not going to be back out in the street it's having your housing do you sorted to, do you ever get to a situation where Somebody's in 20, 30 years, they're in an open prison, they have routine structure, they might have a job and they're eligible for parole. They don't go for it because they don't want to get out. Or they go for it but make it clear during the meeting that they don't want to get out. Uh, Yes. How would you manage that? Yes, we do. Can people stay in forever if they want? Um. I'm sure my colleagues in the Irish Prison Service would be guests. <laughs> I know, yeah. Given the, the, the level of overcrowding and at yeah. how overcapacity they are. Um, there are people, people who, who don't want to get out. After three, two or three decades. Like. And, and there are people who, who self-sabotage, who you can see are on the way out and, and will do something to set them back and will say, I just, I couldn't cope. Um, I just couldn't cope with the idea of it. Yeah, we all know the, the film Shawshank Redemption. You know, when Brooks gets out after a was a forty or fifty year and he just couldn't cope with the society mm. that he was he was going back into and yeah. you know, it just, he ended his life over something like that. And that's not something we, we need we want to see. You know? No. No, and and that's to me personally is where you could see the huge value played by the role of open centres so that you can get a taste of open life. You can get you can have a phone, for example, yeah. legally. Um, so you can get a taste of what things are like and, and when we we in the parole board would make a recommendation that somebody is ready to be moved to an open centre we will usually also make a recommendation around a programme of temporary release uh, so that somebody does have that taster there it's not quite the same as being out yeah. um, but it is a step towards and for most people they, they need that step towards it's, that's not to say that you can't um, be granted parole from a closed centre and it has happened where parole orders are being granted to, to closed centres but by and large it is was it's easier both to demonstrate that you're ready to get out but also for you to actually be fully ready to get out um, as much as you can possibly be uh, and to have those supports in place and, and the probation service do enormous work in that um, and, and unsung work in that context um, but they do enormous work working with life sentence prisoners on the outside um, and, and ensuring that they're serving their, their life sentence in the community that way. It, it, and I think that's something that, that sometimes gets lost yeah. in, the, in the wider discussion. Yeah. <coughs> we'll wrap it up while together. Thank you yeah, very much. Thanks, William. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground. I think it was very informative for a wide range of people. And I uh, appreciate coming down to Cork to meet us today. Thank you so always much. Always happy to come to Cork. Yeah. Happier to go to Kerry, but always happy yeah, to go yeah, to Cork. Yeah. We love Kerry too. Yeah, I should give us a shout if there's anything any other time.
Yeah, all right. So See everybody next week. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. The Tunaris podcast is proudly sponsored by Inline Eco, your trusted partner in asbestos removal and re-roofing services across Ireland. Your peace of mind and safety are our top priorities. For more information, visit inlineeco.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.